I've got um, Tim Costa on the line, who we got together a long time back through both having motor chassis. Tim Costa lives in California and has got so many uh, interesting stories. So without further, hi Tim, how are you doing? I'm I'm doing well, and I want to uh, thank you very much uh, for having me on the show. I'm I'm looking forward to chatting with you, and and uh, really enjoyed the friendship that we've had. Is uh, you know it's it's hard to believe, but you can be Facebook friends and real friends at the same time. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. I mean, it's, it's been a long a few years that we've known each other, but never actually met it in in real or it's only through facebook isn't it it is and it's a it's it's uh i wish that we were closer you know we could go ride together yeah that's it both uh, but um so so tim tell i mean you know you 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 gave me some some prompts earlier but you you, do you want to tell me how you started and how you I guess your your first story is about being a conscientious objector. Uh, yeah, I, I guess what it comes down to is is that uh, you know when the Vietnam War started, uh, you know I went along with everybody else and thought there was nothing nothing wrong with that. That's just you know it, our that was our country's decisions to get involved in Vietnam and. And I should go along with it. And uh, when I graduated from high school in 1967, I, uh, I went to Boston and worked in a warehouse during the day and went to um, uh, Boston University at night. Uh, and the reason I did that, you know, this is aside from the, the whole conscious objector thing, but the reason I did that is I did very poorly in high school. And uh, no college would accept me. I did so poorly, but I had I had good SAT scores, and I had the ability to go to college. It's just uh, you know, just uh, I wasn't a very motivated student. So uh, when I found out you can go to college at night, then you don't have to apply to that. You just sign up and pay for classes. I uh, I got a job in the warehouse and went to Boston University at night, and and. Uh, after I did that for a while, I got uh, straight A's in school, and then I applied for for college, and got in. Uh, so, and the warehouse was a good experience for me. And my my best friend at the warehouse had just recently come back from a tour of duty in Vietnam. So we would go out uh, every lunchtime. The warehouse was right next to uh, a place called Washington Park, and Washington Park still has the cannons. Uh, that they used during the Revolutionary War to fight the British, because mm-hmm. uh, the British occupied Boston, uh, Washington occupied the North Shore, the Charles River, and in Cambridge, and they used those cannons to bombard the British and make their lives miserable. Mm-hmm. Because, as as Americans, that's one of the things we like to do best is make the British lives miserable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, so, and he told me what it was like fighting in Vietnam and how insane it was about how his, his M16 rifle would break down, uh, at the slightest, you know, sign of dirt 
or water or whatever, and they finally gave up on it and and took a uh, North Vietnamese soldier's AK-47 and used that for the rest of the war because the, it used basically the same bullets, and he said they had all the bullets they needed, but it never broke down. He said, but their job was to get onto a, uh, a helicopter, fly to battle, and and fight. And then when the fight was over, uh, they would all pile back into the helicopter and uh, and fly back. Uh, there was no, uh, you know, traditional war in the sense that you were achieving territory or trying to hold territory. It was all about how many uh, bodies there were on the ground. And after the the battle, they would go and they would count up all the bodies all the bodies, and that would be it. He, says he just thought the whole thing was completely insane. And uh, at the end of probably four or five months of these discussions, he, he made me promise not to go. Really? Oh. Yeah, and I, uh, I, mean, I, I said, I'll do my best. I still didn't know where I stood, but as time went on, the war just ground down to be an incredibly waste of time of, of human lives and, and was achieving nothing substantial. And, and what we had to deal with was the constant lies from the government about how good it was and how well we were doing when in actuality we were losing our young men, uh, you know, one after another very quickly. And it was just a terrible war. So and there was a there was a draft then. Uh, so men, young men my age were getting draft. We couldn't vote. You had to be 21 to vote here, but you could be drafted at, at age 18. So we had no political voice to try and fight the war. Uh, <clears throat> you know that we were just you know we were just in limbo in that sense. So uh, when. Uh, had, uh, they they wanted to find a way to to make it make it so that not everyone. I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. They wanted to make the lottery more. They wanted to make the draft more fair, so oh. that not everybody thought that they were they were going to go. That some people could ex- escape the draft in some manner. So they established a draft lottery in 1969. And the draft lottery, uh, you know, they, they drew lots according to what your birthday was. And you were given a number according to your birthday. So if maybe if you were maybe January 12th, you would be number 343 out of 365. Yeah. And I'm not even sure if they, they put February 29th into that. And uh, so and they, they did this on national TV. And they uh, and the first the first lottery uh, number they drew was September fourteenth, uh, which is my birthday. Yeah. And of course, we were having a lottery party at that time, drinking beer, having fun, you know, all in, in on tenter hooks about uh, whether we we're going to be drafted or not. And uh, well, that that uh, didn't work out so well for me. <laughs> Got number one. So what I did was, is I called up the Boston Globe, the uh, big newspaper in Boston, and I said, hey, 
I'm number one. Do you want to talk to me? And they sent over a photographer and a, a journalist and we interviewed me for a couple of hours. And then I got one quarter of the front page the next day. And uh, so uh, I had just lost my student deferment because in order to, to keep your student deferment, you had to go to college full time from the moment that you graduated from high school. And if you took time off, you were what they called behind on credits. You had a certain number of credits. If you didn't have the credits you needed, you became what they called 1A in the draft, which is eligible for the draft. So I had just, uh, as I told you before, I didn't go to college full time when I first got out of high school. I, I worked for a year and went to school at night. So I was behind on credits. And I had applied for a student deferment, which they gave me for a while, and then they rescinded it and sent me my uh, notice that I was now eligible for the draft. And that was a week before the draft lottery, and several days after that, uh, my uh, draft board sent me a notice that I had been drafted, which I threw in the trash. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't want to. I didn't want to go into Vietnam. Uh, I didn't want to kill anyone. I didn't want to be killed. But more than anything else, I had uh, I had played football in high school, American football, and in football, in you know, for our coach, uh, one of the things we had to learn was how to hurt other people, because if you injure someone else, that puts them out of the game. It gives you more of a chance to win the game, and I bought into that because that was what ex was expected of me. And so that was part of my job, was to hurt other people in football. And I thought, you know, if I can be, if a football coach who has little power over me can convince me to hurt other people, how easy would it be for me to go into the military and hand me a gun and kill people? And how would, how would I handle that? And how would uh, that affect my life? Did you say, though, with the, um, just going back to the football, did, was there an incident where he wanted you to hurt someone and you, you couldn't go through with it? No. That, that's true. That did happen. Uh, I was, uh, there was an opportunity where one of the other team's best player was sort of caught by one leg and he hadn't gone down yet and the whistle hadn't blown. And I had, I was at the perfect distance to hit, hit him uh, where if I had hit him, it would have broken his leg because uh, just the position he was in, and I didn't do anything. I just stopped, and, uh, and the coach took me out of the game and wouldn't play me the rest of the game because uh, I had he had an opportunity. We had an opportunity, as he put it, to uh, to give ourselves a huge advantage, and I didn't take advantage of it. Yeah. So. so yeah, it, it sounds as though I know what you're saying, that you, you follow the rules of him, but in in an essence, it is coming across that through that, that, that you're not really, it's not in you you within to, to maim someone, isn't it? No, certainly not to kill someone. It's, it's how I've lived my life. So... Uh, so I got the draft notice right after being named number one, and and, had a, and my face is all over the newspaper, and uh -huh. people are calling me up. 
wanted to know what I did, wanted, what I wanted to do, and, and my uh, uh, I could go to jail if I refused the draft, or I could escape to Canada. And what uh, Canada required is, is if you cross the border into Canada, uh, you could stay for seven years, and and you c- couldn't become a citizen right away. You had to give up your American citizenship at the border, and then live in Canada for seven years and not smoke marijuana or get in trouble or do things like that. And uh, you know, seven years without marijuana or American citizenship, you know. I figured, well, maybe that's not such a great idea. <laughs> and uh, so my parents were living in Paris at the time. My uh, my father had been transferred to Paris. He worked for an engineering company, and he was the, the manager of their European uh, division. And uh, so, you know, they had... Uh, they were living of all things around the corner from the Georges Saint Hotel in this nice apartment, you know. And uh, I thought, well, you know, let's try France. So I read up on what the rules were, and and France didn't. Uh, France would accept you if you were uh, wanted to get out of the draft in the United States, and you could live in France. And after seven years, uh, you had to take a test and tell them how much you liked their wine and their women and, and France itself and their food. And if you liked all of those things, then you become a French citizen. I thought, well, okay. But the other thing I learned is is that there were three uh, three ways of uh, of fighting the draft. Of, of uh, uh, you could. You know, you could ask for a reconsideration uh, of your of your draft notice, and you at the local draft board, and you could also do that at the state draft board. You could appeal it. It was an appeal process, and you could appeal to the national board. Now, each of those takes six months. You know, so if you appeal their decision, as they said, you know, they had made me one A draft eligible. If I wanted to appeal that. It would take me 18 months. They said, but in the fine print, if you're outside of the country, your appeal time is doubled. So that would mean I would have a one-year appeal time at the local level, one-year state, one level, at the, one year at the national. Uh, so that would delay the uh, the uh, process by three years. And I thought, well, you know, live in France for three years and run down the appeals, and by that time the war will probably be over. And I, so I thought as a, as a legal delay tactic, that would be the smart thing to do. So I uh, flew to Paris and on Icelandic Airlines, which was a uh, prop jet airline, air, airplane back then. It was uh, uh, 16 hours in the air, eight hours to Iceland, another eight hours to Luxembourg, and then another six-hour bus ride down to down to Paris. And yeah. and, uh, and the the Icelandic Airlines was just full of marijuana smoke. You know, everybody was smoking on the plane, and then the the, uh, the the attendants came through afterwards with a with a bag to collect it all. You know, because you didn't want to be caught by the Luxembourg authorities with those things. So uh, oh. it was just it was a it was a '60s party plane, and uh, it was a hundred and eighty dollars round trip, uh, New, New York to Luxembourg. Uh, just even back then was not a lot of money. It was a pocket change almost to get to Europe. And then uh, so I arrived in Paris, uh, and uh, and my parents were very pleased to see me. They they didn't have room for me, 
in their apartment, but they did have a, uh, a room on the top floor, the eighth floor of the building, which was really designed for maids or au pairs. So I was I lived in this unheated room on the on the eighth floor along with uh, the other with about uh, fifteen au pairs uh, up there, and uh, it was it was quite an experience, you know. Then you know Paris so much different from the United States, you know. It was a uh, in order to get up there, I had to use a uh, a rope elevator. You, you pulled yourself up on a rope. And then when you got to the top, you turned a, a light on, which is on a timer, and uh, and hoped that you could get to the door and get the key in before the timer went off. <laughs> and then the bathroom was a uh, was the Turkish tray, you know, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, no. It's just a ceramic tray on the floor with two foot pads. Oh yeah, yeah. So you don't want to go in there in the dark because you want to be find the footpath so i would i would go to sleep at night and then i, I hear the the click go on as one of the other residents would click the light on and then the running feet of and then and they get to the door and if they didn't get the door before the light was on you'd hear shisa <laughs> and then the slow walk to try and turn the, the the light back on and make it again so that you got in before the, the light went off. So so basically we were you know we were <laughs> those poor girls were training for the Olympics up there. Yeah. Uh, so I uh, while I was there I applied for a conscientious objector deferment and uh, and uh, my mother wrote nice supportive letter and uh i was there from december to probably uh, march and the uh the draft board wrote back and wanted me to come back and do an interview to see that they would give me the conscientious objective deferment or not so i came back uh i came back in march and had some time and i had met a, a girl from uh, uh, amsterdam on the plane and she had decided that uh, she talked me into hitchhiking across country to California yeah. and back while I, you know, while I was waiting for my interview. So we did that. Uh, we got two rides across country, one from Boston to Albany, and the other we got picked up in a uh, Volkswagen bus uh, that the owner had a, a, a mattress in back. And you know, and he needed help with somebody who could drive and had enough money to pay for gas, and uh, he, you know, we uh, we had a great trip. We went to San Francisco, stayed in Berkeley for a while, and then in San Francisco, and then and then hitchhiked back. And uh, and and the side to that is is that uh, I should have studied. The United States is a big place. Yeah. I mean, it's thirty two hundred miles across, and. Uh, I should have studied my geography better before I went out west because uh, uh, we got to, we hitchhiked back. Uh, now the, and the first ride we got was from a, a guy in a 1956 Dodge pickup that was primer gray uh, that had a full turn of free play on the wheel. And he had all, he was already halfway through a, a fifth of gin, and this because of the free play, you you couldn't drive straight down the freeway to get up into the mountains, you know, on the way back 
from uh, San Francisco to Reno, Nevada, uh, he would tack across the freeway. So he would flip the wheel over and the and the truck would drift across the road until two wheels were on the on the outskirts and then he would you know and then he would flip the wheel back and we would tack back across until the left wheels were were over and that's that's how we got up. And at the end he gave us uh, he gave us a little money and we slept out in the sagebrush and walked into town in the morning, and I got picked up by a man who, who uh, wanted to know if I had a driver's license uh, because he bought cars from gamblers, gamblers who thought if they just had a little more money, they could still make it big. So he had six cars and wanted somebody to drive one of them for him to Boise. And I thought, well, Boise, Iowa, that's on the way, and said, sure. Well, Boise's not in Iowa, which is on the way. Boise is in Idaho, which is eight hours north. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you don't, yeah, and when it's the middle of winter, you don't want to travel eight hours north. So, But when we made a left turn at Winnemucca, Nevada, and turned up into the desert, I realized that I had made a mistake. And uh, I've been a better student of geography ever since. Yeah. <laughs> But I have one story. One story before I get back to that is is that this uh, the the guy that drove us up. Uh, he was you know he was older, great hair with a beard, thin and wiry with a chambray shirt. It was a, like a blue jean shirt and blue jeans on, cowboy hat. Just this old rancher from Nevada, yeah. and uh, you know years later I was at a conference in Washington D.C. And uh, and I went down at the, to the bar and had a scotch. And there I was just sitting enjoying a single malt scotch. And the guy next to me said, that was quite a ride, wasn't it? <sighs> I looked, and it was the same guy, dressed in a suit, same same gray beard, same gray, gray hair, uh, looked exactly the same. And uh, he laughed about how scared we looked as we... <laughs> drifted our way up into the hills and uh so we we had a good conversation he wanted to know what happened to to the girl and uh what happened to me and what happened with the draft lottery because i told him about that and uh and we had a good time and afterwards uh, as i turned to go he tapped me on the shoulder and i turned around and he he said you'll see me one more time so i figured He's my uh, he's my guardian angel. Uh, uh, I have an alcoholic guardian angel. <laughs> so, <laughs> I haven't seen him yet, but I uh, I don't doubt that I will see him one more time. <laughs> so I I came back east. Uh, went down from my uh, my conscientious objector interview in New Jersey. Uh, with the local draft board, and they asked me a lot of very, very tough questions. And the, the remarkable thing was is that only three weeks before that, there had been a Supreme Court decision. And the, the, uh, the, the Supreme Court decision had to do about conscientious objectors. And up to that point, the only way that you'd get a conscientious objector deferment was through uh, a religious objection that you had to be a member of the Shakers or Quakers or some religion that was 
against violence. Now, I was a Catholic, and no one has ever accused Catholics of being against violence. So uh, I didn't stand much of a chance on that, but Supreme Court had decided that uh, because of the separation here between church and state, you couldn't deny a, uh, uh, a conscientious objector uh, for moral objection to war uh, uh, and only a religious objection. You had to accept, uh, accept conscientious objectors for moral or religious objection. So that was only three weeks before my interview, and the draft board at the national level had not sent any uh, updates to the local board as to how to handle this. So the local board was completely on their own as to handle how to handle my moral objection to war. So that, but they did ask me a lot of tough questions, and I, I you know, enough that I'd, I'd rather not go through that experience again. Yeah. Uh, but at the end, they asked me, and they said, "Have you ever made your views known publicly?" And I said, "Well, yes. Here's my press clippings from the Boston Globe," mm-hmm. and and it was like that was the magic ticket. It was like uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory's golden ticket. You know, it was like. I had made my views publicly about how I was against the war and how I was going to leave the country, and I refused to go to Vietnam, and I didn't want to kill people. And, uh, you know, for them, it was a bureaucratic uh, boom for them because they had something on paper that they could give to the, the state board, which could give to the national board that they could put in my file. And they could say, why did you give this person a deferment and not that person? They said, well, he's made his views known publicly. What could we do? You know, and that was it. So I, uh, I did uh, a few months in a hospital in Mass. You had to do alternative service as part of your conscious objector. So rather than going into the military, you had to do two years into something like a hospital. So I went to work for the Massachusetts General Hospital, ended up working for a colonel who hated me because I was a conscious objector, a former colonel. And, uh, and so I, you know, he had me doing every horrible job there was. Anything that had to do with excrement was my job. And I had to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning in order to do it. But what, what, I, you know, what he didn't know is, is I didn't, I wasn't, it wasn't the military, it wasn't tied to that job, I could go to do any job, so my, uh, my wife at the time uh, convinced me to move with her to Minnesota, uh, where there was, uh, you know, higher wages, lower cost of living, and uh, a lot more opportunities. I didn't understand that. Uh, sorry. Oh, was that, was that you? That was my phone, prompting me. Yeah. Even if it's off, it, it uh, tries to interrupt. <laughs> so, yes, she, she's not the first person to tell me that I, they didn't understand me. <laughs> no, you didn't. So, uh, uh, so I ended up in Minnesota, and uh, I did my two years of alternative service there. And uh, I, I went to work for a purchasing department in a Catholic hospital, and after three weeks they made me supervisor. And uh, because I had taken programming courses at Boston University, they had me work with the computer department to, to computerize and modernize their purchasing department. And, and that system is still in place there with, uh, with all of my notes and, and uh, you know, 
So it was uh, it was a great opportunity. They had me for two years. They could pay me whatever they wanted, uh, and uh, you know I was happy. They uh, it worked out really well. So that's my conscious objector experience. Yeah, blimey. That's, that's quite a story, isn't it? It sort of gives the flavour as well from what you're saying about like the, the marijuana and um, those times, I think, more in, on love rather than hate. And, and I think even uh, a famous record that we had over here was 19, which was about the um, Vietnam soldiers being the average age was 19. And then they were saying how, um, um, you know, a lot of them went into war, uh, died. There was a, it was like a really tough war that the Vietnam um, were making it really difficult for the Americans, and like the Americans weren't getting anywhere. Yeah, and it's funny, and I think you, you know most people will find if they look back on their lives, they'll experience this that 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 so often what you think is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you turns out to be the best. Maybe you lost your job but got a much better one because of it. Uh, for me, getting number one in the draft lottery seemed like the most horrible thing possible. But uh, if I had been number two, I wouldn't have been on the front page of the Boston Globe. And I probably wouldn't have been able to pass that interview and become a conscience subjector, they probably would have sent me to Vietnam. So that that birth date that was so awful and uh, put me in such jeopardy was my ticket out of the war. Yeah. yeah so, you know, it's, yeah, it's not the first thing that had happened. I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. Uh-huh. The worst became the best. Yeah. So you have to look for those things. Yeah, that's it. It does. It does sound like you say from from a real bad negative. It, it became your lucky, your lucky, uh, you know, ticket, as you said. Yeah. So I had uh, as an as a, a follow up to that, uh, I had known a a young woman at Boston University who was six years older than I was when I first started. I was. You know this this wide-eyed uh, you know football player from New Jersey, you know not very knowledgeable of the world, and I made a great friend uh, by the name of Karen Manners, who was a uh, Brandeis graduate student, and uh, her father was an anthropology professor at Brandeis. Her brother had graduated from Harvard. Very intellectual family, and uh, she sort of took me under my under her wing and filled me in about how the world was really working and opened my eyes to a lot of things, including the Vietnam War. So I I owed a lot to her for the short time that we knew each other uh, because we, you know, uh, when I went to, uh, went to Paris, she then went to England and, uh, and we didn't see each other again. So years later, when I started this company where my job was to, the company's job was to find people. I had all the skills to find anyone I wanted, anywhere I wanted. And so I tracked her down in, uh, in Kansas and uh, wrote her an email and thanked her for all that she had done for me. 
And uh, so she wrote me back. We had this conversation, and she asked me what happened after uh, after our friendship sort of had you know had uh, broken apart uh, because of the war and everything else. And I told her this whole story that I just told you, and she said, "Well, that's that's a great story." She said, "I asked her what uh, happened to you," and she said, "Well, she said I uh, I met with Ram Das, the, uh, the the famous guru out of uh, out of California, and and he had suggested that I needed to find myself through religion, so I I moved to to London and joined a cult, and uh, she was." with this cult in, uh, in, in London for, for a number of years, uh, called the, the process or the, they, uh, if you know anybody from that period, they would remember them. They wore black capes and silver upside down crosses. Right. Uh, and, uh, so she became part of the inner circle and, uh, and eventually married, uh, someone who from that and they, they escaped the cult and, uh, and came back dates, and uh, she finished her PhD, and is now a history professor. And uh, so she thought that my story and her story were were typical of of the '60s, and that there should be a college reader uh, for stories like those about the '60s. But her, you know, she said, you know, that it should be about hippies and communards and and yeah. people who are politically active, you know, progressives. And I said, well, that's, you know, that doesn't make sense to me because, you know, the, the period was so much more than that. They were the people who fought in the Vietnam War, the people who were, uh, who, who went down south to help the civil rights movement. There was so much more going on uh, than just the hippies and communards. And you should tell those stories as well. So she asked me to... Uh, to be co-editor of the book, and uh, so we proposed the book to Prentice Hall, and uh, they thought it was a great idea, and we, we put that together, and uh, it's it's you know it's available on uh, it's even available on uh, every medium now. And you, I mean, you can you can plug your uh, book, Tim, because like you can give details or. I can add those details of the book after our chat as well. Oh, it's, oh, it's, the book is called Time It Was, American Stories from the 60s. And uh, the, the cover is uh, inspired by uh, a 60s uh, rock poster. And the woman who did it is a, a famous artist for, uh, for, for movie studios down here and is heir to the Girardelli Chocolate Fortune. She's one of our neighbors. So, uh, you know, so, but it was, I've met so many amazing people. Uh, and the, one of the first person we got to you know, write for us was uh, Crash Co, uh, who was a Vietnam helicopter pilot who was shot down seven times. And it took me a while to, to track him down because he was, he was just, he didn't want people to, to know who he was or where he was. And, uh, I asked him to write, and he uh, he agreed. Uh, if only we would also write about his brother who was killed in Vietnam. Oh. Uh, so the first story in the book is Wayne Co's story about his Vietnam experiences, and the second story is his brother's story that I used his letters home 
to build a story about him uh, to to let people know what he was like and what a tragic loss it was to lose him. And this, you you sent me those pages of the book and and reading that it it hit home, you know, how he explains about some of the um the the times when he was shot down and going down and the injuries. It was pretty horrific. It's uh, I I've got real sympathy for those, you know, being so young and going through what they did. Yeah, it's uh, it was uh. It was a scary time. I mean, uh, it was fun. I mean, the, the 60s were, were fun and exciting, and there was there was drugs, and there was girls, and there was, uh, there, there was no AIDS, and, you know, STDs were extremely rare, and it was just the, you know, the, the things to worry about were, uh, the biggest things to worry about was Vietnam and pregnancy. Uh, so uh, it's not it's not like today where there's a thousand more things to worry about, you know, mm-hmm. especially in the middle of a pandemic. You know, the, uh, uh, yeah, in a sense, but, uh, but it was a it was a it was a fun time, you know, and uh, you know it was like this gigantic party, you know, the entire period is like a, you know with great music and great fun and great parties and and really you know just really interesting the world was changing i you know i went to uh as an example i went to a a concert in central park june of 1967 and the group was called the young rascals and uh so they had this you know amphitheater set up with these folding chairs and everybody came in and and uh, they wanted to listen to the, so I called them the, the, the typical stand and strum 60s bands, you know, from the early to the, the mid 60s. And the uh, the warm up group was Jimi Hendrix. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. So this was his second concert back in the United States uh, after he'd been in England. And uh, he completely blew us away. I mean, no one had ever seen anything like that before or heard anything like that. It was, you know, it was, it was an electron, it was, it, you know, the entire concert was electrified. Everybody in it was on their feet and completely astounded. And after he was done, uh, he and his group came off the stage and everybody that was in the audience just started filing out because there was no point in staying for the rascals because we had just seen the world change. Yeah. And that was, Jimmy was the, um, the support act and they was the main. Yeah. The Jimi Hendrix experience. And it was, uh, it was six months later that, uh, that he, that his first album came out and I bought it immediately and played it for everyone I could. And no one wanted to listen to it because it was, it was too weird. And uh, and and now I hear that same music at the grocery store. And we've played so much now. Yeah. <laughs> now it's you know now it's elevator music. <laughs> oh right. Oh. <laughs> and you've got another interesting story as well. You sent me the um, the picture of the person wrapped in a duvet as well. Was that that was another concert? Oh, yeah. I, well, I spent the uh, 
And when I when I moved away from New Jersey and went to Boston, my mother's friend made me a handmade quilt, and it was the it was the ugliest damn thing. It was uh, you know had this white flower pattern, off white flower pattern with a pink border and these little springs off the edge, like like something that you'd tie down for in a quilt, uh, in a in a crib for someone. And uh, but it was mine, and it was uh, it was handmade, and it kept me warm. So so mm-hmm. I liked it. And uh, and 1969, I went to uh, I went to Italy for the summer and traveled around Italy. Uh, and uh, uh, my older brother that I uh, that I shared an apartment with went to Woodstock. And uh, he took the quilt with him because if you know my brother, what's What's mine is mine. What's yours is mine. You know, my clothes were his. You know, my belongings were his, and nothing ever came back right. If he borrowed my bicycle, it came back broken. If he if he borrowed my car, he he it would break down, and he would leave it there. Uh, so uh, you know, I, mean, I don't know if you have an older brother or like like that, but that's what mine was like. Yeah. So he took the quilt with him to Woodstock. And uh, and Woodstock, uh, it it rained uh, a lot, and the entire place got muddy. And uh, he didn't want to lug around this heavy wet quilt anymore, so he left it in the mud. And another couple picked it up and uh, wrapped around themselves. And the photographer took their picture, and that became the cover of the Woodstock album and the and the movie poster. So my quilt is will always be far more famous than I will ever be. Yeah, everybody knows that quilt. But <laughs> so uh, so years later, when I we were doing that book for Time It Was, uh, I tracked down that couple. Their names are Bobby and Nicholas Erkeline, and they still live near Woodstock. And uh, and Karen Manners, now Karen Manners Smith and I traveled down there and, and took them out to, to dinner and heard all about their story, uh, which was a great story about how finding the quilt and what their Woodstock experience was like. And it was just this really great evening, and it was a great story. And we asked them to write for the book, and they said no. Really? Why, why wouldn't they... Do- I, I, I mean, I won't understand. Well, they they said maybe, but then they talked to their attorney, and their attorney told recommended that they don't. They said you don't want to give up your story, oh. and it made no sense. Why would you? How is that giving up your story? You're sharing your story, yeah. but they just they just wouldn't do it. I think in the end they didn't think that they had the writing skills. And uh, and you know we explained to them that uh, you know we had people that. Um, you know, not everybody can can write the sort of quality story they want. But even if, if you wanted to just tell us the story over the phone, uh, you know, we could make sure that uh, it's it's in your words, you know, and uh, and come out the way that you want. But they they just wouldn't do it. And and so who else was in the book? So that was the the people from Woodstock, the uh, the guy from Vietnam and his brother, so that was three. Did you say there were six stories? Is that how? There's the... 20, 26 stories. Oh, right. Yeah, so we had uh, Jim Fadiman. Uh, if, you, if you've ever read uh, the, the electric Kool-Aid acid test, 
Uh, Jim Fadham and his wife Dorothy are highlighted in that for the first dozen pages. Jim Fadiman was the head of the LSD research program at uh, Stanford, and his his cohort was Timothy Leary, who had the same position at Harvard. And uh, so, uh, and Jim Fadiman was one of the founders of the Esalen Institute uh, in in California. So I asked him to write for his story. I mean, what a great story. The head of the LSD research program at Stanford, where I found out that that from him that the CIA was running experiments on LSD at a a house of prostitution in San Francisco. They would would give the the Johns uh, surreptitiously LSD and then observe their behavior through a two-way mirror. Uh, and, and, yeah. and I also found out that uh, through the LSD research program, they uh, they would they would give people low doses, people that wanted to solve problems, but you know, but uh, didn't know how to get past the the brick walls that they'd run into. Yeah. So they would give them low doses of LSD, and then you know, help them through the process of finding out what the solution is. And these were some of the most creative minds on the West Coast at the time. And uh, some of those people are now, you know, uh, the people who founded Apple and Microsoft and the uh, and really the origins of the personal computer came from breakthroughs under LSD. Well, I, mean, I didn't know that. Yeah, there's a book about it called uh, "What the Dormouse Said." If you were want to, live, that tells you all about that program and how many great things we used came came through that program. Yeah. So that was uh, that was Jim Fadiman. Uh, uh, my wife and I went and visited he and his wife, uh, and uh, his wife used to to date the the man who wrote uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, that's, that's a brilliant film. Yeah, yeah. So so that was, uh, so. and Jim Fadiman uh, met met her through him. And, uh, and then they, you know, then Jim and Dorothy got married. And uh, so we went up there to have dinner, and my car broke down along the way, so we didn't get there till late. And, uh, and so we ended up, being there like at ten o'clock at night, and and Jim Fadiman cooked us uh, eggs and toast while we talked for hours mm-hmm. and drank wine, and it was just really fun. And then you know we we had to fly back to L.A. and then a couple of days later I had to fly back to pick up my and the woman on next to me on the plane asked me where I was going, and I said, well, I uh, I, I have to go back to Jim Fadiman to to talk to him for a little bit, and she said. You know Jim Fadiman? <laughs> said, I said, well, I, I do. I had, uh, he he, uh, he made us he made us uh, dinner the other night. You had dinner with Jim Fadiman? I said, well, yes. He uh, he made us eggs. And he said, Jim Fadiman cooked you eggs, and I said, that's what I called out. I said, yes, he did, and toast. <laughs> <laughs> So apparently he was a lot more famous than than I realized, but he's just a, a really great guy, and uh, he's he's 
become a good friend. And that's been the process. Is uh, uh, Another story is the story of Sam Lovejoy, who... Uh, who came back one day from uh, from a trip out west to to his little town in Massachusetts, and and there next to his farm was a 500 foot uh, weather tower. A 500 foot tower is that's good size. Yeah. And so we, he you know he started asking around about what the hell this thing was really for, and found out that it was from the local power company, the New England Power Company, who was planning on putting in the. Uh, a nuclear power plant in his town. And so we started reading up on the type of power plant it was because he was, you know, he had an engineering degree. Um, he made his money selling marijuana, but he had an <laughs> engineering degree. It's the 60s, you know. Yeah. So, so Sam Lovejoy, uh, you know, reads up and starts interviewing people about the dangers of, I mean, nobody had any idea at that time, this is in the late 60s, that nuclear power was dangerous or that could be cause problems or there could be meltdowns or leaks of radiation. And this is just a small town in western Massachusetts, and they're going to put this gigantic power plant uh, in the middle of the river, in the middle of town, and everybody was, the only thing they they thought was is it was going to give them lots of jobs. And he couldn't get anyone to listen to him about what the dangers that he discovered was. So he didn't tell anybody what was gonna, what he was going to do, but he went out one night and uh, with this, you know, with some large tools, and there were five stays, some cables, that uh, that held this this tower to keep it from swaying, and uh, he removed the stays, and he said it was the scariest thing possible because once he'd unbolted these you know five inch thick cables, they snapped up and almost took his head off. So he had to like you know, unbolt it at the time it was just creaky, and then just do the last bolt and watch the thing you know climbing up into the up into the tower and he says it sounded like he sounded like the end of the world it was so loud and he thought everybody would come running but nobody heard it so he uh he removed four of the stays and they have at that point the tower just came crumbling down and uh he then hitchhiked into town and he got a ride from two policemen and <laughs> And he, uh, he turned himself in at the station and handed him an eight-page manifesto as why he had taken that down. And uh, and that was, you know, <laughs> they uh, of course, they arrested him for a destruction of, uh, of private property and, uh, and ended up going to, to trial. And during that trial, he had people like Howard Zinn uh, speak for him, and he, and he had witnesses that uh, were like one of the designers of the General Electric uh, nuclear uh, engine that they were going to run to this plant, who talked about how dangerous it really was. And as a result of this trial, he was able to tell the people in town just how dangerous it was and how the last thing they wanted was to to have it. And uh, as a result of his explaining why he did this and why it happened, they declared him innocent. Wow, what? And and that ended the uh, and that kept the, the uh, plant from coming into town. 
and that was the beginning of the uh, the nuclear uh, the the anti nuclear movement was started with that tower. Now he was asked by Hollywood to do a movie about that. He'd been asked to write books about that, and uh, and he had wouldn't do it for anyone. He said that was it's my story and it's going to stay with me. And I thought, well, well, let's take a chance and see if he'll write for us. So as as a lead up to this, I had been years before that. I had a house in Minnesota that I completely redid, like you did, redid the floors, took all the paint off the the old oak uh, around the house. And, you know, at one point, the entire house was in disarray, and my wife had told me that this is one thing you don't want to do. She said, do not touch the upstairs bathroom. I said, fine, I won't touch that. And one day I came home, and I was uh, under, under, you know, in the room underneath that bathroom, and there was a, a leak coming through the ceiling. You know, there was water dripping, and the, the plaster was coming apart. So I went upstairs and I unbolted the toilet and found that the seal had had uh, leaked and had been leaking for a year. And there was a three-foot area of rotten flooring and subflooring underneath. Oh. So I took the toilet off and I, uh, I was, and I, uh, you know, chopped out all of the wood and the subflooring. And it was the, you know, the, it was the old, old style piping. It was lead pipe, you know, the, and, uh, you know, and of course, and it's you know, at, you know, I'm in the middle of all this. You know, I've got my my head over this lead waste pipe and you know, all this debris around me. And at that point, my wife came home and <laughs> absolutely blew up it. <laughs> so I had to cut out a new piece of sub flooring that I had to cut out exactly uh, according to the area that I had cut out. You know, which was an uneven and get that hole exactly right. And I had to do it like three or four times before I got it right. And finally placed that down, got it all, and fixed it all up. Okay. Now back to the story of Massachusetts. We go and visit Sam Lovejoy, who's now a, a, a lawyer in Massachusetts because Harvard was so impressed with his job of defending himself in this case that they, they gave him a, uh, uh, a free ride to law school. They accepted him in law school and paid for his tuition without his even applying. Uh, so now he's an attorney. He's you know he's this country attorney in Western Massachusetts with this nice house that he's renovating. And he, as we go in and we're talking to him, and he doesn't know us, we don't know him, but we wanted to talk to the wanted to ask him to write for this little book we're doing about the sixties. And he takes us around the house to show us what he's doing. We get to the second floor, and there is a toilet sitting on the floor next to next to this big hole where there's a bunch of rubble, uh, uh, where uh, the subflooring and the flooring had been taken out because it was all rot rotting. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I said, cutting that plywood out to fit that hole is going to be a bitch. They looked at me and he said, he said, yeah, I've done it five times already. I haven't done it right yet. <laughs> so I, I gave him a little t- few tips on how to do it right. And he looked at me and he said, he said, you know, anyone's had their face done a, a lead waste pipe for a couple hours trying to get things like that. There's somebody worth their salt. I'll write for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> so he did. So the final story in the book is, is you know, uh, Sam Lovejoy. I think I titled. I think I titled it. Uh, somebody has to do it because because that's how he felt. No one would take any action. No one do would do anything. So he took down the tower and did everything that ended up with keeping that uh, power plant and starting the anti-nuclear movement in this in this world um, because he didn't see anybody, you know, he didn't have any choice. No one else would do it. That was really courageous. But also as well, did you did you say he had an eight-page uh, Yeah, an eight-page uh, uh, manifesto. Really? Yeah. So, so that so that when he's pre-prepared as as well. I, you were, you were breaking up. I didn't catch the question. Um, so I, I was just sort of recapping and saying that in in essence, he was really brave to to do what he did. But he he sort of went into it in in a in a way that you know preparing that manifesto. He was he was sort of geared up for it. Yeah, yeah. Now the the book is available on Kindle now. Uh, I think it's like five or six dollars. You know the the the, uh, the publisher told us they were going to publish the book for for thirteen dollars, but instead they they brought it out at thirty three dollars. And then I think every time they sold a copy, they raised the price. So I think it's like sixty or seventy dollars now to buy the book, and which is ridiculous. I, when I buy it for for my friends, I buy it used. Uh, so, you yeah. Know. So, uh, but it's available on Kindle, and and so you can get it on Kindle. So same again. Either if if you want to give like you know something that that will. Um, that will uh, sell the book in the sense of how they can find it, or I can add those details to the uh, to the end for you. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. I mean, I uh, I you know I don't make any money from it at this point. So if people want to if people want to read it, they want to buy it. I recommend the Kindle version because it has everything in it and it's inexpensive. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of really, really great stories in there. And also, you you tell them as well. And and just so we're going to be coming up to the the news soon, Tim. And um, I'm sure you've got loads of uh, you, you know loads more stories in you. But if if we say if we uh, come to an end now on this recording, and then uh, I'll add those. Um, details and uh and, and and maybe we can come back with some more okay it'd be fun i have to go and meet my my brother for our bike ride all right so uh I'll, so i'm gonna go get my bicycle gear on and yeah uh, <laughs> let me just end the recording now and uh and then i i'll say thanks very much for being on the uh, radio show and maybe we can uh, continue with some more stories, or but I won't stop you from going away, Tim. I really uh, thanks and uh, appreciate you coming on the radio show. Thank you for having me. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it because you know 
who doesn't like to talk about themselves? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It was great talking to you. It was very, very nice finally getting a chance to, to chat with you. Yeah. No, I really appreciate it, Tim. Thanks. See, um, Facebook friends can become real friends. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> All right. Take care. And you as well, Tim. That's lovely. Stay, stay warm and safe. You as well. Stay, stay safe in these uh, COVID times. Uh, do I have to worry about warm? I'm in California. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care.